Welcome back to the Off The X Podcast. My name is Cody. I am your host. Today's guest is retired supervisory diplomatic security special agent Kevin Warner. Kevin spent over two decades in the DSS with notable assignments at the U.S. Embassy Manama, Bahrain, and U.S. Embassy Tunis, Tunisia. And I mention those because there Kevin faced hostile mobs at both locations, both who attacked the embassy. Uh, trouble seems to follow Kevin. He also served at a rare and unique assignment as a deputy director at the International Law Enforcement Academy in Bangkok. It's not an assignment that I've talked about with people before, and I think you will find that one very interesting. Kevin has a wealth of knowledge and experiences that he offers to all of you in this episode. So listen in, enjoy, and I'll catch y'all next time. But yeah, man, so, uh, you know, we have a mutual friend. Uh, his name has been mentioned before on the podcast. I won't mention it now unless you choose to uh, to, to tell us who it is. But he he, uh, he was a BSAT classmate of yours. Yes. And one of my first ARSOs, my, the ARSO in uh in Nassau, Bahamas, which I don't right. tell too many people about because a Marine in the Bahamas is not the, the uh, most hardcore place to be. Um, but yeah, so he connected us and he says, uh, well, you got some, some things to talk about. And I, I know we have another person in common. We talked about uh, Gunny Jameson. Um, yeah, yeah, small world there. Yeah, yeah. He was my gunny. He actually worked for Andrew as well um, uh, whenever he was in Nassau. But what I like to do is just kind of run through, uh, maybe just give us a timeline of of all your posts when you came in, and then uh, and then we can go through each one of them. and And I want to capture these stories that Andrew, who oh, there you go, I dropped his name, who <laughs> did our job for us, who did my who did my and your job for us, and, and gave me uh, you know uh, some bullet points to talk about and uh, and run through them. So take it away. Tell us how you started with DS and actually let's start with what you did before DS and then, uh, you know, what got you into it and, and go from there. All right. Yeah. So, um, strangely enough, when I was in college, so I I went to Northeastern in in Boston and, um, was a criminal justice major. And of course, like, like a lot of us said, Oh, I'm going to work for the DEA or I'm going to work for FBI or those are the two big ones. And I think it was junior year we went to a presentation. It wasn't a job fair. It was just a presentation from the FBI office. And there were about maybe 25 CJ students there. And then, you know, they did their normal FBI thing. And then they turned it over to this other guy. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm from the diplomatic security Boston field office. And he handed out some pamphlets. And uh, I'd never heard of them. I'd never heard of them. None of us had. But I was like, oh, that sounds like a cool job. And, uh, you know, this is the nineties, so there's no internet or anything. So I, I literally just had the pamphlet for years. And, uh, so I graduated and it was in 91 and it was that there was a recession. It was really hard. You couldn't get a job, couldn't get a job in law enforcement. And I always joke about how, uh, my life was a Bruce Springsteen song because I, I ended up back at home with my parents and I was working in the pizza place where I had uh, worked in high school. And then I worked with my dad in the factory. I was a United steel worker. And then I got laid off and I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, I was on, un- I was an unemployed steel worker getting unemployment checks. So that drove me into the military. That and a lot of what people were telling me of, uh, you know, Hey, you're a great candidate for all these police jobs. Like you're a great candidate, but, you need some experience. 
So I went into the Air Force mostly because uh, they were the ones that guaranteed me security police on first enlistment. Um, so my dad's a retired Marine and he thought that was a splendid choice. He said, no, Air Force life is much better. Um, and I see you've got your Marine stuff in the background. So, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with your dad. Yeah. So, um, and it was a great experience. I was a little bit of a weird guy because I had, I was a enlisted guy with a bachelor's degree and, uh, and that was because I wanted to be a cop and they tried to talk me into officer candidate school. And I said, all right, if I, if I'm a cop and they said, well, no, you'll be an officer. You'll, you'll go where to, we need you. You're a manager. And I said, well, no, I'd rather be a E2 cop than a O2 logistics guy. So, um, spent just over six years in the air force as a security policeman. I did some time in uh, New Mexico and then spent most of my time four years in the UK at uh, RAF Mildenhall. Loved every second of it. It was a great experience. Um, I rose through the ranks pretty fast for air, for the air force. I, I got senior airman below the zone, uh, staff sergeant first time out. So, um, uh, I was pretty happy. And, uh, on my last deployment, so this was 97, I guess, 96, 97, I was in Saudi Arabia and I was working a gate. I was in charge of the detail at the gate at uh, PSAB, Prince Sultan Air Base. And Madeleine Albright was coming through and they stuck a, an agent on the gate. And we ended up talking. He said, oh, I'm diplomatic security. He was from the LA field office. And I remembered that pamphlet. <laughs> and I said, and I already knew I was getting out. I decided I'm, I'm done because I was at my six year mark. And it was at that time, especially as an enlisted guy, where if you signed up for another four, then you were, you were probably going to stay in. If you do 10, you're going to do 20. Um, and I knew I had to make the leap. If I was going to get out, then I was going to get out now. So um, he gave me his card and he said, hey, they're going to open up the job here in uh, a few years. And uh, this was back when maybe they would have one class per year. Um, it was the pre, I guess it was the Inman hires. They, so they weren't having a lot of classes, but he said, we're going to open it up. It hasn't been open in years. So I got out and I, uh, I called him when I got out. I was living with my in-laws back in New Jersey. And this is now the early days of the internet still. <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, we opened it up. So I did the, uh, filled out the application and, and sent it off. I was one of the lucky ones. So I, I separated from the Air Force in January of 98. Went through Beck's through the spring and early summer and had a tentative job offer and then the east africa bombings happened in august of 98 and i remember my uh my dad calling me and he said saying oh they're gonna call you and they did they called me on a thursday or friday and said we need you here on monday and i took a chance and i said um i'd really like to give my current employer i was working at a drugstore like a cbs but he had, the manager had been really cool with me, let me take all this time off to go apply for jobs. And I said, I'd really like to give them two weeks notice. And they said, all right, we'll then be here in two weeks. So, uh, yeah, I ended up in BSAC 50 
with with Drew, and uh, you know the rest is history. So I was lucky. I, I I didn't. There were folks on my in my class that had been on the wait list for years. Uh, there have been folks that had been trying to apply for years. So for me, the you know the gods were smiling on me. Right as I had made the decision, I would mentally decided, hey, I'm getting out of the military. I'm getting out of the Air Force, and I'm going to apply for all these jobs. It opened up. And then there was obviously the East Africa bombings uh, accelerated everything, the hiring. We were that, we were at the very front of that wave that's still working its way through the DS system. They, they call it the pig and the python. We were at the very front of that. Man, how times have changed from not hiring every year to, or, or several years, it sounds like, to once a year to the new messages, open enrollment. Apply yeah. apply when you're ready. Yeah, I mean, there were times, there, there were a lot of times, yeah, they had open open hiring and uh, they had one-day job fairs where they had panels at colleges and they were doing interviews. You were getting your, you were getting your tentative offer with it in one day. Jeez, that's crazy, man. I got, I, I, I tried three times. I didn't make it the first two. And the third time I got my conditional offer after I passed right there. And uh, which is kind of what they're doing now. Well, no, no. Secret Service is doing that now. Now, that you, you know, you got to get on the register. So you got to do some other things after you pass the BEX to get on the register. Uh, but that might be an offer and, you know, right. and just pending all these other items. But, uh, well, good shit, man. Yeah. 98 is actually when I joined the Marine Corps. So I was, uh, and, and I, one of the cat, the catalysts for me was the, the August bombings. Uh, you know, it was, I was on the edge of doing it. I had a buddy that was joining. I, was like, I don't know. And then I thought I was going to infantry and I did infantry, uh, before I went MSG. And, uh, and that was kind of the catalyst for me to get in to, yeah, to the that military. Was, I, and I had looked at that. I had looked at going back in. Um, I had looked at going to Air Force OSI. I had interviewed with DEA. I had interviewed with FBI. I had interviewed with several local departments in, in northern New Jersey, which was where I was living. Um, I interviewed with Border Patrol. So, um, you know, I had a lot of irons in the fire, but DS was the one I wanted. And I always look back at that um that presentation at my college back in whenever it was 90 91 where the guy <laughs> he had the one stupid pamphlet and he handed it out and said oh you know this is who we are if you guys are interested let look us up sometime did you ever run into that guy on the job later down the road no he he had retired by the time i came on the job i did stay in contact with the guy from la okay um, so he he had been tempting on SD, which as we know now, which is why they stuck him on a gate in the middle of the desert. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. So, you, but that's, so that guy, did you run into him on the job or? Uh... Yeah, he, he had helped me. I remember as I was, uh, as I was filling out the online application, I had him on a, um, a speakerphone at my brother. I didn't even have a computer. I was at my brother-in-law's house and having him on a speakerphone as he was, not quite coaching me, but hey, how do you answer this? Um, yeah, yeah, what are they looking for here? Yeah, sure. I mean, those can it can vary. Having having someone on the job will, will, will could could certainly help. That's that's good. So you did BSAC fifty. Yep. Um, and then uh, what was your what was your first assignment? Walk us through those. So started out in NIFO, which was perfect for me because my family was in Northern Virginia in. Uh, in Bergen County. So that was easy choice for me. Um, ended up in uh, 
living in Hackensack, which again was was easy for me. I was already familiar with the area. We had family there. So it, for that, it was an easy transition. Um, had never lived in New York, had never worked in New York and uh, loved every second of it, even to this day. Well, one of the things I was saying right as I was retired near the end was I still consider myself a NIFO agent who was just TDY to the rest of DS to show them how to do it right. Um, it, it was that NIFO attitude and learned a ton. It was a great time to be there. Um, our leadership was, was split. We'll put it that way. Uh, had some great ASACs, had some great uh, supervisors. The SAC, who's a little infamous, who I won't name, uh, left a little bit to be desired, but we had a couple of great ASACs that really took care of the agents, really mentored us, um, let us do a lot, probably more than we should have, <laughs> but um, also had our back. You knew they had your back on a lot of stuff. So uh, started in NIFO, um, did a lot of cool stuff, was on the, at the time they would, because of the way prosecutions were, and I, I've been since told it's, it's flipped back and forth several times over the years. But when I was there, Southern District took all of our cases, Southern District in New York. So Manhattan, basically, and New Jersey was tough. New Jersey did not want to talk to us. But I, since I lived in New Jersey, we were on the Jersey Jam Squad. And uh, I remember we would go with Drew and we would meet at the uh, Vince Lombardi truck stop on the turnpike and we'd leave one of the cars there. We would just spend you know, the whole day in New Jersey doing door knocks, clearing cases and, and trying to develop something that was meaningful. They would take something if it was, if it was meaningful, but they didn't want to talk to you for the four C cases. Uh, so. I had a couple, there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Had a couple of good ones out of there. A couple of meaningful ones, uh, you know, kidnapping cases out of, um, out of Haiti, a guy going down and, and um, basically buying kids from poor from poor mothers and then putting them out in the black market for adoption. And uh, we were involved because, of course, he was forging birth certificates and, uh, and passports and visas and things for him. So it was a joint case with the Jersey State Troopers. And I, I believe it was, I think it was the Passaic uh, District Attorney's Office. Um, and the FBI, strangely enough, even though it was kidnapping, was kind of, they were involved, but they were in the background. So had a really good case there, had another really good case where they were a uh, um, bunch of Kenyans were working in uh, halfway houses for uh, mentally disabled people. And they would get administrative jobs. And of course, the, these people, they were mentally disabled, but they were functional. So they had jobs. They were working in supermarkets and things. Well, they had files with all their biodata and they were taking all that biodata and getting passports under those identities using the assumption that this guy's never traveling. Well, the guy put in for a passport and his family was told, oh, you already have one. <laughs> so, um, and what they would do is they would just move from halfway house to halfway house and they would raid it, get passports, and then they'd quit. And then they go into another one. So um, again, it would turn into a good case. And because there was some uh, aggravating circumstances of taking advantage of these, these folks, um, a great, great prosecution. Uh, one of my, so I'll tell my first war story though. 
on that case. We we got it all together, been surveilling the house. We're going to hit it. It's us and the, again, I think it was Passaic County. And we had the local PD there with us and we get the house and we, uh, no problem. We arrest the guy, we get the guy and he's sitting on the couch and he says, you got the wrong guy. And I've always been like this. I said, now's your time. While, while they're doing a the search warrant, said, tell me how I'm wrong. I said, no, fuck you, fuck you. You got the wrong guy. All right. So we bring him in. We do all the process. It's my subject's twin brother. Had no idea he had a twin. Oh, no shit. <laughs> oh, that sucks. An identical twin. Oh, man. That His is rough. mother called and was like, no. So what happened? Did you end up getting the other guy at some point? So we had to. That was one of the my worst. That's you know, like one of those things they don't teach you in BSAC is having to go to the U.S. Attorney's office and like, yeah, we need to let him go. It's the wrong dude. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Um, but I mean, we were righteous on everything, and uh, we ended up getting the right guy. And uh, you know, it, it turned into a great case, and we recovered a bunch of money because, of course, once they got these people's identities. They were tapping into their bank. They got greedy. They were grabbing people's bank accounts and stuff too. Um, but yeah, that was one of the worst having to go into the ASAC and saying, Hey, uh, we, we just, we just wrapped up the wrong dude. And I got to go to the U S attorney in New Jersey who we're trying to cultivate a relationship with and tell him we got the wrong dude. And then we have to go to the judge and say, uh, <laughs> uh, we got the wrong dude because they got they held him without bail because it's identity travel documents. Oh, he's a flight risk. Well, it's the wrong dude. <laughs> yeah, sure, uh, man. So were they using the the? Uh, they were obviously applying for passports with the name and with and in the identities of these individuals. Were they selling those? Were they like recruiting Kenyans, for example, to send them a picture and then yeah. and then using that, sending it maybe over to Kenya and then traveling over? Or, yeah, so it would be. But, it was their their clients in Kenya, or uh, there was some from other, but it was mostly from Kenya, East Africa, and they would fill out the application in this person in this American's identity with everything, and they would try to match age, but then it would be that it would be the Kenyan's picture. So the documents they were selling them for a lot at the time. It was ten thousand plus because I mean, if they got them and they got a, they got quite a few. These were legitimate passports. These were were real. They weren't fraudulent passports. The the picture was fraudulent, and it was a clean identity. It was you know mentally disabled person. There was no record of them. Very little records of them. There was no criminal record. It was these were gold for these guys. Wow. What they get? What kind of time they get? Um, the main guy got I I think he got ten years. Oh, so, good. Yeah, by yeah. the time he got sentenced, I was in China, uh, but it was a long, long time. But uh, and then the the brother, the one we the one we arrested incorrectly, they ended up the, I had a hardcore AUSA. She ended up we released him, but then she rolled him right into immigration lockup. <laughs> so um, he got deported, and a couple other people got two and three years for some things. Um, but that got pled down. They, there was a lot of thousand ones and then that got traded off with the state because the state wanted to hit them um, on some things too. But the main guy got, I think 10, whatever that is in months, I forget. That's pretty good for uh, 
for the DS case, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, at the time it was it was kind of unique. It was a uh, um, it was a uh, especially in New Jersey. So, um, and then I did a lot of you know, as you did in NIFO, there's tons of protection, and our ASAC liked me, so I and I guess I did a good job for her. So I did. I get stuck with a lot of the 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 crap ones. So I, I was Yasser Arafat all the time. Um, I was Bibi Netanyahu all the time. I was the Dal- lead advance. I was the Dalai Lama all the time. So um, I was just joking today about seeing that Netanyahu is the prime minister again. So uh, there was a, a point in time when it, he would get off the plane in Teterboro and he I did his detail so much. He would just, Oh, Hey, Kevin, how are you? It was, he knew me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those, those are some heavy hitters in, in, in world history. Uh, you know, those two, especially. Yeah. Uh, of course, so, the Dalai Lama. Yeah. So awesome. You know, obviously we did, we were heavy into the younger thing every year. Um, and again, doing, doing like Yasser Arafat during Unga is just a, it's a carnival and, other than POTUS and a couple other ones, you know, we were the biggest game in town. So we were rolling with MSD and M, uh, NYPD, uh, ESU, and and then, of course, the, the Israelis would go into New Jersey a lot. So we were pretty tight with the Jersey State Troopers. Um, there was another one. Here's a good one for you. I'm trying to think. I think it was a speaker of the Knesset. And we had to bring them to Newark. And uh, I had been the shift lead. And for what I got sick, I was sick as a dog and I lost my voice. So I demoted myself because I, I just couldn't talk on the radio. So Drew became, I, I was like, hey, you know, you're shift lead. I'm going to, I'm going to drive follow because I can't talk. And uh, we had to make a move. And Drew might remember this. Uh, we're going through the Holland Tunnel. It was a sudden move. The guy come out. He's like, we're going to Newark Airport. I got to leave. And I had a slice of pizza and a giant like Coke and I'm driving a follow car flying through, like, I think it was the Holland tunnel and Drew's looking at me and he's like, I don't even know how you're driving. Cause I'm eating and I'm driving and I've got the, the big gulp with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, he also mentioned, uh, you know, let's say it's a fan request fan of yours, uh, Drew to discuss your playing good cop in NIFO. Um, I don't remember that completely. I think what he's referring to, if I remember this one right, I think we were up in the, this was his case, up in uh, whatever they call it now. It was Hell's Kitchen. I guess it's got a fancy name now. And uh, we were banging on the door and the guy answers the door. And I'm the big guy. I mean, I'm 6'2". I'm, even back then, that was... I'm stuck. Drew is Drew. He's he's not tiny, but he's not a big guy. So I'm supposed to do the bad cop. <laughs> and uh, the guy like comes to the door and he starts screaming. And, and I think if this is what I remember, if this is the one he's talking about, and before I can do bad cop, Drew like grabs him, slams, <laughs> pulls him out of the apartment, slams him into the wall, um, starts swearing back at him, and now I'm the guy like, hey, man. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, let's, no, no, no. Let's just talk. Let's just talk. 
but that was usually mine is uh i was the i was the bad cop there were times i think it was with him um like telling people i shouldn't say this but uh you know telling guys on the street up in like washington heights and of course two white guys walking around they knew we were cops of some kind and a guy getting in our face and me telling like i'll deport you to whatever third world shithole you crawled out of um and drew going hey uh, not sure we can do that uh, <laughs> uh there was another one where there was a guy tail i think it was the same one where i demoted myself and the guy was tailgating us and he wouldn't he wouldn't back off the follow car and this was we were up in westchester and uh i just looked at drew and i said i said we were at a stoplight and uh i said hang on and he looked at me and he went what and then he went oh shit because i slammed it in reverse and stopped the gas and basically rode right up this guy's hood because he wouldn't he wouldn't come off us and then we came on and then we kept going <laughs> but that was a good one where drew was i just went hey hold on and he looked at me and he went oh shit <laughs> Oh, that's good, man. I mean, there's tons of stories that come out of, of you NIFO guys. Uh, I've had more of those, more NIFO guys and girls on the podcast than anywhere else. And uh, you, you, I mean, I say this on every podcast that I have one on. So, I mean, you know, you guys are like the pinnacle when it comes to field offices because you do a little bit of everything and get a ton yeah, of action. I mean, man. we had the great relationship with NYPD, especially NYPD Intel. Um, I was helping out on another case. And we were with one of the old street crimes units up in the Bronx and everyone ended up going to where the passport agency is in Connecticut now, Bridgeport. And uh, they told us, hey, there's too many people telling these guys. So someone, some guys break off. So my two street, I'm with them. And they were like, hey, we're going to break off. And I'm like, all right. And I thought they were going to drop me off. And they're like, hey, we're going to go. Uh, we got this kid for uh we're looking for this kid for a homicide. You want to come with us? I'm like, okay. So we were going uh chasing that chasing out after this kid all through the Bronx. Um they didn't end up getting him that day, but you know, we were doing I'm doing a homicide case basically with two uh street crimes guys that were looking for a, a guy that had what they had warrants on him. Um you know, they and then doing stuff like uh or just that New York attitude and, and being a cop there. Uh, I, I walked down, I had a detail and I came in with uh, the ubiquitous bacon, egg and cheese on a roll for breakfast. I come in the CP one day and they said, uh, the cop says, hey, where'd you get that? I said, oh, the deli across the street. And I forget how I said it, but I said, oh, it's, you know, it's three bucks. And he says, they made you pay for that? I said, well, yeah, it's, it's three bucks. It's a bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll. They're like, oh, come with us. I'm like, no, 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 guys, we're, we're cool. It's, it's cool. They're like, no, you don't understand. This is not about you. And they, they took me back to this deli and badged this guy and say, did you make this officer pay for his breakfast? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm trying to tell them, hey, look, I didn't identify myself as anyone. I didn't want anything special, but for them, it was, it was a thing like, Hey, if you're, you're, if you're a cop and you go and you don't pay for your bacon, egg and cheese on a roll, <laughs> so they're like, you give this officer his money back. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want him. <laughs> uh, but those um, are, 
those were great times up there um, to be kind of part of that fraternity. Yeah, sounds like it, man. What up? Uh, all right, what's next? Where do you where do you head to next? Uh, Bahrain. So we did our bidding, and I ended up getting Bahrain, which I was somewhat familiar with because I had done an R and R there when I was in the Air Force. So when we were in in Saudi, they gave us a whatever, like a 48 hour pass in Bahrain. So it wasn't totally unfamiliar to me. And I, I knew enough about it that I felt safe taking the family there. Um, great tour. My first RSO was uh, Kevin Bauer, who was is still with DS now. He's, he's the consigliere up in uh, the PDAS's office. Uh, second RSO, he, he left after a year. And then I had Tim Haley, and completely different styles, but learned a ton from them. I mean, Kevin was just, he was a great person to have as a first time ARSO, as a baby ARSO, because he was just encyclopedic of all of those regulations and, and walls and lights and alarms and locks and all that minutia that most of us hate doing that he made you learn and he made you do it well and writing BIs and writing reports and, and doing the quarterly status report. And, uh, you know, learned a ton from him. I still to this day, I, I saw him just before I retired and said, Hey, you know, you know, I, I, everything I did, I learned from you. So, um, that tour, we got there, I guess, in August of 2001. And then of course, September 11th happens. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still at the point where I can barely get into my own office. I, you know, I don't even remember my own codes to the doors and, you know, the world changes. And, uh, then we had the lead up to the, so Bahrain was pretty quiet for that. Um, nothing really happened there then. Although I remember we kind of quietly reacted the Marines and, and said, don't come screaming in, but just get everyone in here, make sure everyone's here and sober. And, uh, but then as we were leading up into the war, uh, we were already in talks about, are we going to evacuate? Are we going to do ordered? Are we going to do authorized? And back then, again, it was a different time. Now they would, they'd be out the families, but it was, it just wasn't done back then as often. And uh, the embassy got attacked on April 5th, 2002. So the ambassador had, we had a new ambassador, uh, Ron Newman, who's just a legend in the foreign service. And because of his last name, there was a rumor like, oh, he's Jewish. They, they foisted an Israeli Jew on us. Um, so he had gone to a model UN for the international school and the, the person, the kid representing Palestine said, Oh, can we have a moment of silence for the, for the martyrs killed by the Israelis? And they did. And then ambassador Newman said, Oh, well, can we have a moment of silence for the innocent people that were killed on both that have been killed on both sides? Well, that, of course, got reported in the local press as 
US Jewish US ambassador makes Bahraini children hold moment of silence for Israelis. <laughs> so uh, that didn't go over well. And on the Friday, so the following Friday, they just, the hordes come to the embassy on, on all sides. And we had, it was me and Kevin Bauer, but the other ARSO was on R&R. &R, and um, was Gunny Jameson there? He was. Yeah. But um, I st still remember this. I'm up on the roof and they had said, oh, well, we want to send a delegation that uh, a petition to the embassy. Well, no one's there. It's it's us and the Marines. And uh, Kevin Bauer was is again, he's great. I love the guy, but he was an older style RSO. So he puts on a suit. He's going to go out and accept the petition from these people. Well, as he's doing that, they start breaking through the police lines. And they're just coming at us. And I'm screaming in the radio. I'm like, run, Kevin, run, get back in here. And he has no idea. He's out front in a suit. I don't even think he had a gun on. He just, he'd gone out to go take a petition some, from some cleric. So he finally gets back in. And uh, we got beat up pretty bad. A um, lot of damage. Lots of vehicles burned because we had brought the vehicles onto the compound. And when they came over the walls and all the Molotov cocktails coming at us, all those vehicles burned. And it it looked worse than it was, but uh, some of those vehicles had no almost no gas in the tanks. So when they started burning, they didn't just cook. They, they cooked off big. It boom, because the oxygen in the tank and it would just go. Um, and I learned then why... Um, in other parts of the world, people shoot protesters that have those slingshots because I was on the roof, some hundred meters away. And I remember a kid pointing at me and he's pointing at me and he let it go. And I heard that thing go by my head, but like a, not a crack, but a boom. Now I, <laughs> I ended up going downstairs and going to, cause again, this is early DS, at least for in our generation, I didn't have a helmet. I didn't have a Kevlar. I went down to grab one of the Marines Kevlars. I'm like, hey, dude, give me a, Mar give me a Kevlar. So, um, and they, what they were shooting out of those things were roller bearings. And they were actually shattering the ballistic glass on the backside of the embassy. Um, so they never got in. They got close. They were on the compound. And at one point, Kevin led us out. So it was, and this was, totally against doctrine at the time. And we only had shotguns. We didn't even have the Colts yet. So me, Gunny Jameson, Kevin Bauer, and um, whoever the next Marine was, I think he was a, a corporal, went out to sweep the compound and, and push them off the compound, um, which was successful. It was enough that we, we scared them away enough um, but at the time, that was breaking doctrine. You didn't leave the chancery. Yeah. How and many people were talking? They, they came over the walls. 
you know, when, like a lot of these, there were, yeah, this is going to stretch my memory. If I remember correctly, I think we pegged it at 2,500 to 3,000 protesters. And at any given time, within that, a more organized group of, and this was, since they're mostly Shia, this was Hezbollah, they were Hezbollah flags, um, of them, maybe in groups in ones and twos, or as many as 20, 25, trying to get indoors or on the back or, or to smash in windows. Um, the Bahrain embassy is a little weird because the backside that faces the road where most of them were is actually fairly elevated. There, there's not a door or a window, probably for what would be the equivalent of the third floor. So they'd have to come around the sides. Um, and of course the police all fled and, and didn't hold the line and, and it took hours and hours and hours. And we, that's when I learned our tear gas doesn't, isn't worth a damn because you would literally shoot tear gas at them and it was the powder and it just would go poof and they'd laugh at you. Um, but we, we managed to hold them off. And um, to this day, I still say Kevin made the right call. Tactically in that environment, I, it wasn't doctrine, but tactically we had lost all our cameras on the side of the building. We didn't know where they were, but you could hear them trying to get in the doors. There were doors on the sides. And, um, and once they had got, if they had, gotten in those doors they would have been behind the hard line so tactically it was the right move to go and clear the compound um, but we had rpr people out after us we had marine corps company out after us uh we had with ncis now they were all sympathetic but um in the end our ambassador wrote directly to the DS assistant secretary, who I think was Dave Carpenter at the time. And I still have a copy of the email somewhere where he, uh, he laid it all out. And then in very diplomatic terms, told the DS assistant secretary, uh, back the fuck off my RSO. <laughs> so, um, but again, it was one of those things where, you know, I, in all my time in the military, I'd never done that. And now all of a sudden I'm in a stack with two Marines with shotguns. <laughs> Uh, you know, coming yeah. around corners and, and, and uh, you know, a couple of guys at one point, they, they launched the guy had the slingshot and the kid threw a Molotov cocktail at us. And, uh, you know, two of us came up and boom, boom. Now it was about 80 meters and it was like back then it was number four buck. So we, we peppered them pretty good, but didn't obviously didn't put them down and they went scampering back over the walls. Um, but yeah, that was my first interview with PR of. Yeah, so that that's what I was gonna ask about when you guys, before you guys, you know, broke the door open and head out. Did you talk about ROEs? And I mean, oh yeah, uh, you, you can't go out there with a gun and point their face and not pull the trigger because they're just gonna take advantage. So right, you know, yeah. I mean, um, talked about ROEs, talked about rules of engage of uh, use of force, but not like this generation, not like you, we remember. Um, again, it was a different time. It was, it was improv. Um, I felt very confident when I pulled my trigger and I felt very confident in my statements that I could articulate that, uh, you know, the bad guys intent, opportunity and capability and what, what we were trying to do um, and why we considered what they had done deadly force. 
So I felt completely righteous and we, we were, but um, looking back on it at the time, it was, it would have been considered completely inadequate. What we had talked about. Sure. Give some context a little bit about the embassy. Was it like just an old school palace building or did it meet Inman standards? Did it meet any standards? Oh, yeah. uh, it, know, was a, it was, was an it? Inman building. It was a newer embassy at the time. Um, pretty solid. Although there were only two ports for the Marines to fire out the back and they were very small. So in the FEBR window up on the third deck, it was literally size of a toaster they could open that and because we were on the third floor it was very hard for them to fire down into the compound um just the way it was structured because it wasn't at the top of the wind i mean it wasn't at the bottom of the window where they could stand up there was almost at the top of the window so um subsequently with tim haley there that was one of our lessons learned is we were trying to get obo to fix the windows, but obviously OBO didn't want to rip out FEBR windows. So we, as part of the react kit for other parts of the building, the front, the sides, um, because and because of the way they were, the Marines couldn't engage them with tear gas. I was up on the roof throwing <laughs> tear gas or dropping it down. So I was exposed, um, having the time of my life, but I was exposed. Um, anyway, back to when Tim Haley was it, we, we made it part of the react kits is every Marine had a sledgehammer and they were authorized to just sledge out the window if they had to in order, because for instance, there were two spots where we would put Marines initially that could watch the front door, the front door to the chancery, but there was nothing for, they couldn't do anything. So because that was not one of the firing ports. It was not one of the ones that opened up. So they could call out, oh, they just put explosives on the door. They There's 25 guys with machine guns, but there was nothing they could have done. So, um, and again, a different time. I th think OBO and DS would have been more responsive, but back then it just wasn't a thing. So we came up with our own now, Tim Haley, I don't know if you knew Tim, and then later on, the ARSO there was Eric Legalis. They had both just come off MSD. So um, we did a lot of inventive things outside of OBO that um, based on our lessons learned from that April 5th attack. So the REAC gear, everyone had a sledgehammer. And like I said, down to the Lance Corporal knew, hey, it's your call. If you need to knock that window out, you do it. Um, we had boxes, there were long, narrow hallways and narrow stairwells on both, both ends. And we had boxes of seawire that were just pressed into, we made plywood boxes and you could unlatch that and basically like a slinky tumble seawire down the stairwells just to clog them up. And you could run seawire up and down the hallways to clog them up. Um, so, I'm trying to think of some other things. We 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 got anti-climb on the walls. That was that was new. Uh, <laughs> in in a place like Bahrain, to have and put anti-climb on the walls. So um, myself and the facilities guy came up with the design, and we got OBO to sign off on it. We called it Shark's Teeth. It was basically razor 
triangles and uh, it was on a spinner. And so if you try to get over it, not only would it roll underneath you, but it was, it was just rows upon rows of, of razor. Um, and then we would have people come out from the Navy, there was Navy base there. So we'd have the SEALs come out, you know, and test it. Hey, how can you get over our wall now? Um, how would you get in here? So we, we did a lot more, but again, that was because of Tim and Eric's MSD background. Uh, we dropped a whole ton of, uh, we almost made a second wall. The Navy used to make these giant concrete blocks that they used to tie off aircraft carriers when the aircraft carriers came into the port. And we bought hundreds of them and we pushed out to the edge of the property line and then some more, and we almost made a second wall. Um, because you could drive at one side or two sides, you could drive a vehicle right up to our perimeter wall. And that was public property. So, um, you know, we did a lot of, at the time, innovative stuff. Now it would be just normal. I mean, you would see that in Copenhagen at this point. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a good example of being proactive. I have a good bit of aspiring DS agents that listen to the podcast. And, you know, one of the things they test for is thinking outside the box, critical thinking, being innovative. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you guys did. I do. I, I've heard of Tim. And I've heard of Kevin. I don't know if I've I've met them. Uh, I don't know if I've met them in person, but uh, but I've I've heard their name. Of course, they're way above when I came in in 08, You know, but um, but shit, man. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Jameson had the uh, had I guess what I forget. He says ball bearings, right? That they were shooting at you yeah. guys. He had one embedded in the in the in the glass that he brought. He cut like a, a square out. Yeah, and uh, and brought it over to Nassau. Yeah, when they came to fix that, I mean, they had to, in the end, OBO had to replace almost all the windows on the backside of the embassy anyway. Um, and they, I remember there were a bunch that had, I've still got one of the roller bearings here somewhere too. Um, but yeah, I remember one of the Marines saying like, holy shit, sir, that, that you know, calling me and say, hey, come down in here and look at this. And it was embedded in the, in the window. And he said, that's right near the firing port. He said, that's right where I'm standing. And he said, a couple more of these and that window's coming out. That's insane, man. That hits you in the face. You're done. Yeah. What, uh, well, awesome. What, uh, what was next? Uh, what did I do after that? I went back to DS headquarters and was in, uh, counterintelligence. Any, uh, notable experiences there? Oh yeah. Um, so that was kind of what I wanted to do. That was this was all up to this point, kind of according to my plan. So uh, had always had an interest, had zero experience in it, and uh, was really one of my favorite tours. Um, at the time, we had really great division chiefs, because at the time it was a division. So uh, worked for Andy Korpecki. Uh It was where I first met Bill Miller. Um, worked for Nancy Rolf, and then worked for Barry Moore. And all of them got CI. CI is a completely different world than, um, than regular criminal investigations. And you had to have a different mindset. And, and we're, by statute, we're not the big guy. It's the FBI. So you, by design, we're the junior partner in anything. So it was really up to us to show our value added to the 
the partner, the FBI in most cases, um, because they didn't, by statute, they did not have to involve us. <laughs> uh, and it helped that we had some great division chiefs that were very, very aggressive. You know, the program is, the program's defensive, but let us go out and do a lot with our FBI partners and let us generate leads and let us work cases with them. So, uh, and uh, can't say enough about Bill Miller. I mean, all of them were great. Andy Korpecki is a friend to this day. Um, you know, Bill Miller is the first, when I met that um, legend, that's my dog barking, uh, the, the legend, you know, where he would come by and say, hey, what are you guys, what are you working on? And then he would take the whole office. This is back when DS headquarters was still in DC. And he would take us all up to George Washington University Student Union for coffee and like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna go hang out and look at girls for a while. And then, um, you know, he was all about business, but he was also about morale and looking out for the troops or, hey, we're gonna go do a run after work or, you know, whatever. And uh, I became a Bill, Bill Miller disciple from that, that time, uh, as well as Nancy. I, lo I love Nancy. Uh, Barry Moore, again, is a friend to this day. So, had a lot of interesting cases. The big one there was uh, the Don Kaiser case. So if you've ever read, uh, Robert Booth wrote a book. I saw that the other day, uh, the Robert Booth book. I didn't know he had written one, uh, but uh, again, a guy that, that I'm kind of mentoring um, that's applying uh, or just actually passed the becks, sent me and said, hey, what do you know about this? And so I, I didn't. And then he replied, like, hey, it's really well written and it's a good book. But no, I haven't heard about the case. So. I would I would highly recommend if for a subsequent uh, podcast track down Robert Booth. I, I've got his email somewhere. I can send it to you. Yeah, that'd be great. He's he's got great stories from another era, an era before ours. Um, but and then so he wrote the book about spies at state. In the Don Kaiser case, is one entire chapter. Um, so, and I'll be careful here because I don't know what's unclassified but I know what's in the book. So it originally came to us, FBI came to us and said, hey, uh, we saw this State Department officer um, hanging out with the, with the Taiwanese intelligence officer here in town, which is of course what they do. You know, part of what they're doing in town here is they're, they're looking for spies. So they gave us all the information we needed and we looked into it. And at first we said, no, no, he's, he's the, He's the PDAS in East Asia. You know, it's totally normal for him to be meeting with senior diplomats from Taiwan. So they went, oh, you know, okay, that's that's great. And they said, oh, you know, keep an eye on it. So we did. We were keeping an eye on it from afar, and they were as well. And we started doing some digging in uh, one of the first – I'll go way back and say one of the first criminal investigators, the best advice I ever got was, uh, I said, find the first lie. I said, you can investigate anything, find the first lie. And they said, once you find that, you might not be onto whatever you're investigating, but you're onto something. <laughs> so we, as we were just doing some digging, we found out like, oh, you know, the relationship with Taiwan is very sensitive. And, and a, a PDAS actually shouldn't be meeting with the Taiwanese. There's, there's, there's notifications and there's all these things that have to be going on because it's very sensitive with China, the two, one China policy, Beijing. 
So having a PDAS meeting with a, someone without telling anyone was, was very, it was unusual. And uh, the FBI was saying the same thing. They said, oh, he's only meeting with this one female. Mm-hmm. And she's, I think she was like, they're basically the equivalent of a deputy chief of station. So we said, yeah, and, and, and there's like all these strict rules. So we started digging a little bit more to see if he had done those things, you know, had a memo going up through the assistant secretary up to the deputy secretary asking for permission to, to meet with these folks. You know, was the, was the Taiwan desk aware? Was, was the embassy aware? So we quietly were checking around. And uh, around the same time they came, and they said, hey, well, he's got a sexual relationship with this woman. So now they're up on him with something. And then we found some of the first lies. We said, well, you know, at the PDAS level, they have a daily calendar. And at the times you said, you know, he's meeting her. Well, I'm making up a time. You said he met her at one from 1 to 4 p.m. On his calendar that day, his OMS has him listed as lunch with his daughter. So like, find the first lie. All right. So he's having an affair. We're, we're on to something. Um, so long story short is he's giving, he's got a sexual relationship with her. He's giving her information on a lot of stuff. All of it classified, all of it, uh, some of it highly classified. So um, we worked this for almost a year. So at first I was the case agent, but I was a unit supervisor. And then I had another great agent who came in um, right out of BSAC. And I'll be honest, I was completely opposed to it because I said, you can't have a BSACer in here. But she turned out to be great, very tenacious investigator. And uh, so she took over as lead case agent, and then I was her supervisor. And uh, we continued to work it. And because I think we were such good partners with FBI, they let us do quite a bit. And um, Again, I'll be very careful here, but we, with the right warrants, we searched his office a number of times and there were technical things that we helped them with. Um, And they let us go with them on surveillances to the point where there was one, and this is in the book, I believe, where it was our agents and their agents in a restaurant as he's handing her the, the, uh, Taiwanese intelligence officer documents that are marked secret and she's taking them and, and putting them in her purse. And, and our, guys, our folks are all watching this. Um, so one funny story I will tell you is on one of the surveillances, I wasn't on this one, but they picked up on it. They said, oh, that, that person in that car, he's taking pictures of us. So everyone freaks out, like, oh, my God, they were blown. They know it. And uh, again, it wasn't me, but it's a great story that, you know, we, we all got together and said, well, how are we going to cover for this? Well, where they were parked was near the Washington Navy Yard. So um, mostly with FBI's help, but we got a Fairfax County cop and a uh, NCIS agent to go just like, hey, we can't hide the fact that we're burned, so let's go acknowledge it. They went to his house and interviewed him and said, hey, your car was seen late at night parked 
suspiciously near the Navy yard and we're just clearing this. And when he said, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I was waiting for a friend and, you know, I'm a State Department official. They were like, oh, great, just great, easy day. I can clear this off my desk. And then we, of course, had him on tech calling her saying, oh, it's stupid. You know, it was, it, we can, we can relax. It's not the FBI. It's, it's the stupid Navy saw us parked in the dark outside their wall. So we were all laughing. Um, but it was a, a funny story because it was one of those ways that well, after we panicked and we said, well, how do we deal with this? We said, well, we can't, they saw us. So let's just acknowledge it. Let's just go be aggressive and go up there. And we got the Fairfax County cop and the NCIS agent to go make it look like the guy just, oh, I just have to clear this thing off me, off my desk. You know, thank God you're a State Department guy. <laughs> Good thinking, yeah. So, um, you know, there was some other things with his his car where we would listen to him in, in D.C. traffic and him swearing and him singing and him uh, talking smack about his bosses and everything. So uh, eventually we had enough where uh, he was arrested. So he they were stopped at, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. It's off the GW Parkway there in Arlington. Um, I can't think of the name of it, but they were, they were stopped and they were taken in. And then at the same time, we executed a search warrant at his house, which is in uh, Fairfax station. And, um, I was on the search warrant team and it was amazing because we were finding things. I remember talking to the FBI supervisor who was the, the co-supervisor and we were finding so much stuff classified in the house that eventually we said, if it's just secret or below, just throw it in the box on the kitchen table, make a note of it what it is, where, who found it, where they found it, and then throw it in the box. <laughs> um, and, and if you've worked with the FBI, you know how unusual that is because they photograph in place and they sketch it and it's measured. And, but we were finding it in such quantities, it was taking us so long that it was just thrown in the box. We also had to call in extra agents. So um, I remember one FBI agent had been on a date she showed up literally in a black evening gown um jane cologne who was the one of the other unit supervisors she was married to rick cologne um so jane jane passed away a few years ago but jane was at home watching movies she showed up in a baggy like george mason sweatshirt with sweatpants so you had eat black evening gown and then <laughs> jane only thing she wasn't wearing was bunny slippers but we had to bring extra people in in another conversation, I remember we were finding things and looking at the FBI supervisor and saying, we don't even know what some of these classifications are beyond TSSCI, but we don't have the clearances to be looking at this. <laughs> um, so, and I'm talking like what I could Q clearance type stuff. Um, so, um, his wife was also a uh, CIA officer. And we found a lot of her um, documents in her, in her true identity. So um, one of the 
one of the uh, sad things about it was her, his daughter, he had a teenage daughter who was brilliant. She was going to TJ, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And um, the mother came home. She was the teenage daughter was the only one at home when we, we executed, when we knocked on the door. And the, the mother came home, obviously. And she said, do you have to search my daughter's bedroom? And we said, well, yeah, sorry. It's, we're here for paper and we're literally finding it everywhere. It's in drawers, it's in cabinets. Um, and then we had to take her, uh, the daughters had a brand new computer. And I remember the daughter being in tears because she said, well, that, my project's on that computer. And we're like, well, no, we have to take, we have to take. And them saying, well, can you let her log on? And we said, no, no, she can't touch it. <laughs> So it was a lot of that was sad. Um, at some point in the evening, he came home. So the mom and the daughter were upstairs and he was downstairs. And I remember seeing him just dejected and uh, sitting in the kitchen, not talking to anyone. And another cool thing, one of the things I found, this guy was brilliant. If you read the book and you or you talk about people, Don Kaiser was known as one of the most brilliant diplomats we had in East Asia. He was like the Asia go-to guy. If the president had a question about China, he called Don. And he was also supposedly had a photographic memory. Um, and we found indications of that in the kitchen trash. So the documents that he had handed to the intelligence officer that afternoon at the restaurant, in true State Department FSO fashion, we found rough drafts that he had crumpled up and thrown away in the uh, trash in his house. Because by and large, even though we found so much paper and other things, the stuff he was passing to her specifically, he was reading and then he would retype it. So he wasn't, say, printing it out in, in the office all the time. Um, so he was out on, on bond and a bunch of stuff. And then eventually we... No, he was not arrested then. So he was taken in. I'll go back. He was taken in and agreed to be questioned at the FBI field office, but he wasn't arrested that day. We have, we eventually got the arrest warrant several days later, and he was in the FSI job search class because at the time he had been named by President Bush as the new director of TechRo, which at the time there was not an embassy there. And back in those days, technically you you resigned from the State Department, and then you got hired by TechRo. What's TechRo? It was the Taiwanese Economic Resources okay. something. It was the embassy, but we couldn't call it the embassy. Gotcha. That's since changed. Yeah, so, it's like American Interest Section now or something like that. Yeah. So he was essentially going to be the ambassador, and he was in the uh, job in the retiree course. So one of the greatest moments of our life is we get to go into the course and uh with the raid jackets and everything and snatch him up and then walk him out in handcuffs through the fsi <laughs> um and then went through so he um he ended up pleading out a lot of this and, and a lot of it was political in my opinion um at the time the bush administration just was not interested in having a spy scandal with an ally. So um, 
he ended up pleading to a bunch of some several thousand one charges. And one of the ones he, he pled to was to pat myself on the back. And this was just a hunch. He had gone on a trip to Asia at one point when we were surveilling him. And it was semi-official. He went to Japan. He went to South Korea. He went to China. And uh, we found out he went to Taiwan. And on the day he was coming, we knew he was coming back. And I drove out to Dulles and I said, I'm going to get his landing card. Remember the old white and blue landing card? Yep. And uh, me and a DHS agent sat there as his flight came through. And then they came in and it was boxes. <laughs> and we went through thousands of them for a couple hours. And I ended up finding his landing card and he did not put that he had been to Taiwan on it. Mm. Obviously. Um, one, because he couldn't, as the PETA asked, to travel to Taiwan, you had to get approval way very high up. Sure. And then two, you know, I'm not going to flag that I'm spying for the Taiwanese. And we knew he had gone. So that was one of the thousand ones that got him was he lied on that. And uh, if you go to SA-20 now at the CI, it's now the office of CI instead of the division, they have a glass case um, with some memorabilia and, and Don Kaiser's landing card that doesn't say Taiwan on it is, is in there now. So he got, I was disappointed. He got about a year, I think he got a year and a day even though he, he got several convictions, but he, they gave him a year and a day. Just just to make it a felony, right? Yeah. He's now teaching at Stanford in there. Oh, sounds about right. Yeah. So um, every once in a while, people talk about, oh, we should get a bunch of agents to go sign up for the course and be like, oh, I have a question. <laughs> so Shit, man. that's a good one. Hey, Mary Beth, can you flick this light on? So um, there were a bunch of other little smaller court cases, but that was that was the big one, the Don Kaiser case. It it made you know it made Drudge, it made the newspapers. It was a a thing for a while, especially from the department. And even to this day, I have to be careful around EAP people because he was such a legend. And of course, the department went into complete turtle mode in an attacking DS and, you know, he was set up in entrapment and we couldn't talk about a lot of it. Like, Oh, you entrapped him. Well, no, I actually saw watched him do it, but you couldn't tell them that. So subsequently, like when I was in China, you know, when the front office found out, Oh, Kevin's the, one of the guys who did Don Kaiser, <laughs> um, you know, it was, a, it was a problem. So yeah, I, I didn't advertise it, but now then Robert Booth wrote the book. So now it's out there. Yeah. I'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll take you up on getting that email from him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, what was next then? Let's, let's keep going. Uh, went to China. So, um, from here on out, my career is pretty much, it's non-traditional. So, um, we were building a new embassy in China. And while all this, interestingly enough, while all of this was going on with Don Kaiser in Taiwan and in other East Asian countries and the East Asia Bureau, literally right next to me 
is uh, John Hampson. And he's in charge of coming up with the CI program for the new embassy in Beijing. And looming over him and his team is the, you know, the specter of Moscow. You know, we can't have that happen again. Sure. So I was bidding. And by then, you know, the pig and the python was there. And I, I remember being told, you're not going overseas. You know, there's too many people behind you that need an ARSO tour. You just, you've already had yours. You're not going overseas. So uh, John and I had gotten to be pretty friendly and he knew my work. And he said, hey, why don't you come out to the NEC in Beijing? And it was not a totally unique because it's based off the Moscow project, but it was really unique in, D- in DS's history where there was a separate and totally independent counterintelligence team embedded within the NEC project, which was separate from the SSM, separate from OBO. Our chain of command was the RSO and then the CI division chief. They didn't, OBO and SSM did not do our EERs, any of that. And it was a very aggressive defensive program. We used to call it, you know, it was a def- just because you're defensive doesn't mean you don't have a blitz package. So, um, and it was joint by design. We had embedded FBI agents and analysts. We had embedded CIA staff. Um, we had our own separate CWIG mechanism. Um, obviously with the embassy and the RSO involved and everyone, but it, it was unique. Um, and that sounds like a good idea. I mean, it's creative to do that. Has that, has that, do you know if that's ever been done again or if they, yeah, I think they've modeled it again, off okay, and yeah. then made changes off our lessons learned definitely in the subsequent consular projects in China. So Shanghai, um, Chengdu, I think those are the ones they've built. And then in other places where they've had uh, sensitive construction projects, and then even it's been embedded in, even into some of the um, the quote unquote normal embassy probably like into the SSM program. I went through the SSM school a couple of years ago, and uh, I recognized some of John's work. <laughs> so. And obviously there had always been a CI aspect to SSM work, but we were designed to be completely focused on just that aspect of security um, and to be super aggressive. So was there, luckily from the time the project was still largely a muddy hole in the ground. And I was ended up being there almost three and a half years um, all the way through the ribbon cutting and beyond. So I learned a lot about construction, which I knew nothing about. Um, I learned a lot about OBO, which, um, as they say, you, you can't sell spell obstruction without OBO. <laughs> um, I often cite that. I was telling uh, Greg Sherman the other day, and he was talking about some of my other assignments and, and some of my wins. And I said, oh, I, I still can consider my greatest assignment, my greatest DS win is uh, the president cut the ribbon on that new embassy in Beijing. And we knew 100% that they hadn't gotten in and they tried. 
they were trying like crazy. Yeah, bet. Um, by the end, it was almost comical where they were almost literally throwing them, trying to throw themselves through the doors. <laughs> um, and uh, my tires suffered. I can't think of how many flat tires I had. Uh, my son and I you got to be pretty good. We were like a pit crew. Um, you always knew when you had tweaked them really bad because you would come out of somewhere and your tires would be flat. Um, and it was a lot of interviewing. It was stuff I liked. It was a lot of interviewing. Uh, we used to call it the confessional. And there was a super high reporting requirement. Basically, you had to report every, if, if you were on the project and you talked to a Chinese person for more than a couple of minutes, you had to do a contact report. And we were um, interviewing people at least every three months, if not every month. And in some cases, and with some trades, depending on the, the portion of the project um, or other indicators, we would interview people almost every week. Um, we also did a lot of informal interviewing. Uh, I learned a OBO term was hanging on the rail. So they'd have the, the, the steel fence and the workers would be sitting there leaning on it, having coffee, smoking cigarettes. And OBO, of course, didn't like that because that was wasted time. And they really hated us doing it because we would encourage that. And we would sit out there and we would talk to them We're like, hey, when you're pouring concrete, why do you do this? And, and that would lead to conversation like, hey, what did you do this weekend? What do you know? What do you hear? And a lot of our best leads didn't come from the structured interviews in the confessional. It was out on the rail or other places where guys would say, hey, you really need to talk to Joe. You know, Joe's having a hard time or, or Joe said something strange happened to him. So we had a lot of uh, a lot of successes there and stuff that wasn't even uh, CI related all the time. We had drug busts. We had guys on on the compound. It was the elevator crew were selling narcotics and they were squeezing people out that were their competition and someone one of our guys picked up on it and we ended up removing the entire elevator crew which obio hated us for uh and then it was it was uh funny at the end of the project one of the renovations they had to do was the elevator shafts because it turned out they weren't straight so the elevators were scraping and we always laughed and said well that's because you they were stoned while they were doing it but um Again, one of my better war stories was I came in and one of my agents had developed some leads and they said, hey, you got to talk to the young guys. There were a lot of young apprentices on that job. So they got their TS, but they weren't experienced, especially overseas. These, these were all Texas kids and Oklahoma kids had never left their county, some of them. And but they were learning a trade. They were tying rebar or they were pushing a broom. And at night they were taking the plumber's course or whatever. Um, they said, you got to talk to some of these young guys. And they said, oh. so we talked to them and found out, hey, they're having, a lot of these guys are having sex with this young, really young girl at one of the clubs in the bathroom. And she's, she's Anglo. She's, she's American. She's a white girl. 
And we said, well, how young? And they're like, well, young enough that we're coming and telling you that it ain't right. And that was not uncommon in, to see young American or Western high schoolers in the bars because the Chinese didn't enforce a drinking age. So we were keeping an eye on it. We were trying to track it down. And, and at one point, we just got the yearbook for the international school. And we sat a couple of the guys down because they'd say, oh, you know, th these guys, they, they, they got her again. Of course, they weren't reporting any of it. The people they were pointing at weren't reporting any contacts. So we sat these guys down and said, just go through the yearbook. And a couple of them independently said, yep, that's the girl. No question. That's the girl. Well, long story short, it's the 15-year-old daughter of the Polish ambassador. <laughs> so, wow. again, things they don't teach you in BSAC or RSO school. I have to go to the RSO, who was Bob Eckert Sr. at the time. And I said, hey, Bob, uh, one, we have to report this. Protect Act, there's no, there's no question. Has to be reported. Second, we have to tell the polls because we have to ask to interview her. We have to ask to interview the family. Um, so Bob was not happy with that at all, <laughs> but um, eventually convinced him and said, all right, he said, I'm gonna go over there. So he makes an appointment with the Polish RSO and Bob and I walk over there and he, the Polish RSO said, well, what, what is this about? So we, we really can't tell you. We need to talk to your ambassador. And he said, well, he'll come down. This took a couple of days. He's all right. He's going to come down, but I, he wants me to stay in the room. I'm like, well, that's, that's fine. So uh, ambassador comes down and we introduced ourselves. We do our thing. And we say, well, here's the thing. Our construction workers have been having sex with your daughter in the bathroom. And we are sending them home for prosecution. Well, at this point, like the Polish RSO just at the table pushes back, stands up quietly and walks out. <laughs> so yeah. um, eventually we got permission, God, from DC and from, from the polls and from the embassy front office. And we, we interviewed her, the daughter with her mother present. Um, and then we were sending the guy home to be prosecuted and God help him because of where the company was, the venue was South Texas. I think it was out of Houston. So the, the South Te Texas district, they'll, they'll prosecute anyone. Um, and then to have someone, you know, national security related, um, protect act, they, they were salivating to get their hands on this guy. But we, before we did that, we offered the polls a chance. We said, look, we're putting this guy on a plane. If you want to crack at him, we can route him through Warsaw. <laughs> and uh, they came back fairly quickly and said, no, we don't have an interest in doing that. But they were very thankful. They're like, hey, thank you. You've handled this very diplomatically. You've handled this very sensitively. Um, but yeah, that was one of the, another good story out of there where things they don't teach you are like, hey, we have to go tell the Polish ambassador. You know, one of my steel workers has been routinely banging his daughter in the bathroom in some club in Chinatown, San Latin in, in China. Uh, so, um, 
we had some other good ones. We had a couple of, of CI related prosecutions um, that were not necessarily classified information, but it was sensitive enough that they basically got them on a FARA charge, which is the Foreign Aid Agent Registration Act. Um, we used to jokingly call it espionage light because you didn't have to prove classified. So they were uh, sharing proprietary information or unclass, SBU level stuff. Um, so we got a couple of prosecutions out of that. But again, one of the interesting stories, I was at the proffer in Houston, or as I, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Houston, and this U.S. Attorney was, you know how they go through it, go through it again. Let's go through the elements one more time. Tell me again. And the guy kept hitting on his How many times were they briefed that if they had a relationship with a Chinese national that they'd have to self-identify and leave the project? And we tell them like, hey, they're briefed in Houston by the FBI before they come out. They're briefed here when they come first come in. Every time they go in the confessional, we go over the rules and they sign it again. So you know how AUSA is like paper. We had six signed paper of I was briefed this date, I was briefed this date, I was briefed this date. So this U.S. attorney says, so when did the relationship with this woman start? I said, well, we know we know it started. He was having it at this point. And he said, so every paycheck this guy collected from that point on, he knowingly, he knew he wasn't supposed to be there anymore. So that's defrauding the government. Every single paycheck he collected. And I was like, oh, wow, that's good. <laughs> so of course, a lot of that got pled away. But, you know, when they hit, when they go into the proffer session and say, oh, well, we have you for 72 counts of defrauding the government. And his defense attorney says, what? And he says, yeah, every paycheck he collected from the time that relationship started, he was defrauding the government because he knew he wasn't supposed to be there. Um, so we had three, I think, yeah, three prosecutions out of there that were, I wouldn't say yes, they were national security related, um, which was good because in subsequent projects, I've been told they still brief this to the workers going out. Like, hey, you're going to go work on a project in wherever, um, you know, pick a country that's sensitive. You know, don't be this guy because he went to jail for it. So, um, That I always say was my best. I think that was my best tour. That's the one I'm most proud of because we got to stand there in the same room as George W. Bush, the president. Papa Bush came out with him because he had been the ambassador to Beijing before. Condoleezza Rice, and they cut that ribbon. And, you know, we could tell them, Mr. President, this building is secure. I guarantee you that we've given you a secure building. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, and I say it a lot because you've had you've had some good tours. It seems like or at least some some action uh, in in several of these tours, I including mean, what was. Oh, go ahead. And there were some other good ones. I mean, um, 
good story. It's feel good stories coming out of there. Like young kid again, young kids that had never left home. And of course there's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of prostitution. There's, there's all that. And, and having a kid come in and his hands are shaking and he's almost crying and he, he thinks he's going home. He thinks he's being arrested. And he said, you know, sir, I have a problem with alcohol and I'm, I'm way in debt and I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to get in trouble here and I need your help. And then we viewed that as an opportunity, both for our program and for him. And we'd say, hey, you know what, man, you've done the right thing. We're going to help you. And we're, we're going to ask you to go out and tell all your friends, like, hey, if I'm honest with these guys, they'll, they'll do right by me. And we got these, the one kid I'm thinking of, we got him in AA. And I literally, me and the FBI agent used to sit with him with his checkbook and we like taught him, hey, money in, money out. Here's how you do a budget. And, um, and that had nothing, nothing directly to do with the project, but those are feel good stories. And, you know, he went out and told people, he was some of our best advertising, like, Hey, these, these are solid dudes, go tell them and they'll help you. If you're honest with them, you won't lose your job. You won't get thrown out of here. But if you lie to them, then you're going to get thrown out of here. So we had some of those stories too. Um, some maddening stuff with OBO, but I, I don't think I can go into that. I, don't, I think that's still probably sensitive. So I'll skip those. It's all good, man. We got, we have, we're almost at two hours and I still want to hear, uh, cause I, I know you were in Tunis. Uh, yep. Was that next? Was that after? Nope. Beijing? So I went back to CI um, after that. It was interesting. It was not the same tour. It was not the same leadership. Um, but we had the, who was the guy in INR? Um, shit. I can't think of his name. Kendall Myers. Also in the book by Robert Booth. Um, he was a he was spying for Cuba. And it was interesting because when I had been in CI the first time, I was on part of my portfolio was Cuba. And he was what the FBI calls an unsub. It was unknown subject. We knew there was a spy in the department somewhere, and we couldn't find him. We didn't know who it was. We knew someone was talking to the Cubans, and the Cubans were talking to someone. We knew it was probably a man. We knew he was in State Department. Um, and that was it. When I came back, they knew who it was. And they had gotten ready to nail him. And it wasn't my case. But because I had been involved in it previously, I, got, I was involved in the periphery. So... Um, Got to go on that search warrant as well. Got to do some of the surveillance on that, which again was great. But otherwise, the office was a little, it was different. It was just a different leadership and they didn't understand CI. It was more like passport. They wanted numbers. They wanted stats. Why is this case open? Well, it's been open for 18 years, sir. <laughs> um, he's an unsub. We'll close it. Well, I can't close it because it's an FBI case. Um, we'll tell them to close it. Like, well, you know, tell them to get off their ass and, and, and find the guy. Well, no, and, and CI, if you make, 
in counterintelligence world, if you make one operational act as a, a year, that might be a lot. <laughs> and then us as the good guys have to catch that. So there was a different attitude. Um, so I ended up bidding on Tunis. Um, RSO job. Obviously, before that, I had tons of different TDYs. I had done Iraq and Baghdad very early on. It was still the CPA. Um, that was when I was at the CI office. So I think nobody, and Bill Miller was there, wasn't even the RSO yet. So I was there, but I think Bill Miller was the only one there on orders. We, it wasn't even an embassy, it was the CPA. Um, so I always joke that I don't have an Iraq tour. I have, I have a long Iraq TDY. <laughs> um, St. Petersburg, uh, Tajikistan, I had gone to other bunch of other things. But anyway, I ended up going to um, Tunis as the RSO. And it was a, it was a family post. And, you know, not, but the Arab Spring had just happened. I just got there on the tail end of it. And Ben Ali was gone. And they had a new government. Um, it was very chaotic, but they had just gone through a very traumatic time. I mean, there was literally like people running roadblocks with, with guys in black shooting their windows out in the, in the neighborhoods. And I missed all that. So it was funny because there was very much that attitude. And you hear this in a lot of embassies of, well, you weren't here for that. You had the group that was the group that was there. And then the group that is new. Um, so it took a while to kind of establish my bona fides, I guess, because I wasn't one of the ones. My ARSO was. They love Ryan because uh, he had gone through it with them. So anyway, great first year there. Um, went on R&R right as we were getting a brand new ambassador. Uh, and I came back. So that was August again, I think. And so I'm, I'm kind of established by now. I've been there about a year, but there's a brand new ambassador who I had heard bad things about. In the end, it turns out we have a great relationship. But I mean, I literally had a DAS and DS call me offline on my personal phone and said, Kevin Curtail. <laughs> So, I mean, that level of bad news coming. So we have, we're going into September 2012, right? Yeah. And we've got that Mohammed video out and there's a lot of chatter of stuff. Now, the government at the time in Tunisia was, called Ennahda, the Ennahda party, which was basically just the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Parisian suits. They, they dressed well. And there was a lot of information. I was pushing a lot because of my CI background, probably info collecting, liaison, get out. And uh, even to the point where I used to do a daily write-up and I would send it to AFRICOM and I would send it to DS, um, ITA, and it was mostly news stories, but it was chatter the FSNIs had heard, chatter the SD team had heard, chatter I had heard through just talking to cops. Um, 
chatter on the street. And it was all building towards something, but no one wanted to hear about that because it was Tunis. It's a family post. Um, you know, people come here on R&R. &R. <laughs> so we had really just started the ATA program again. So we didn't have a great relationship with the police. Ben Ali had never let ATA go on. So even that was somewhat new. Um, I remember my predecessor saying, like, look, you'll go and do the, the needful meetings, but the police just won't meet with you. They were meeting with me a little bit because we had ATA and we were giving them free stuff. Um, and they knew it was a different time, too. Um, so on September 11th, you know, Benghazi happens. And I remember them. We knew something was going on, but I remember them waking me up, DS Command Center, almost in a hysterics, waking me up on, I guess, the 12th and saying, are you okay? And I was like, whoa, why? What's, what's going on? And they said, it, you know, we've got people stuck in Benghazi. And I said, uh, you know, all right, we were pretty close with Tripoli. We used to share vehicles and stuff with them. We would drive vehicles down and um, and I said, well, I don't understand. And, and I remember them saying, it's bad, Kevin. It's really bad. Be careful. And I'm like, okay, do I need to go in? And they were like, no. So anyway, went in the next day. We had a small protest at the embassy. It got a little bit out of hand, but the police were there, fired some tear gas. It was fine. Um, but again, we kept hearing, no, they're, they're coming Friday. They're coming Friday. And again, not really many people believed it. And the ambassador, to his credit, listened to me and some other people saying, nah, this is not, you know, I, I got a bad, the Star Wars thing, I got a bad feeling about this. And on that Friday, he made the decision, hey, send, every, send everyone home, tell them to work from home. And they had just come out with some teleworking capability stuff. So we had a really great GSO who was the acting management officer. And she said, this is a great opportunity to set up the, you know, the offsite command post and, and test all this. And let's do some vehicle disbursement and driver training and just get everyone out. Um, and again, to the end, going back to Bahrain, what you had asked about ROEs, now it's a different era. The ambassador had been in Jerusalem and in the EAC that morning, we, when I said, sir, we need to talk about ROEs and use of force, and I need the EAC to endorse this, he was, yes, let's go over it. Everyone's got it in front of them. Let's go line by line. Boom, 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 boom. Everyone understands what this means. You know, these are the DS rules of engagement. This is the DS use of force policy. This is what Kevin's asking for us to endorse. I'm endorsing this. And so when I left that EAC that morning, I had gold, <laughs> as well as a bunch of other things. We had done a lot of drills. We had done a lot of compound cleanup. Hey, get the ladders, secure the tools, a lot of that stuff. Um, get the landscaping equipment locked up. Um, anyway, the crowd comes and from three different directions and it's thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people. 
and the police looked like they're trying to hold back. And we were up on the roof. The ambassador and the DCM wanted to go on the roof. And it had to be by prearranged signal because there were three distinct groups. They just surged and hit the police lines and were over them. And I remember grabbing the ambassador. It was like, yep, you're done, sir. <laughs> and yelling into the radio, you know, hit the duck and cover, which meant everyone was supposed to get to the safe haven. We had a couple of outbuildings. Um, so in the end, we had someone from the MEPI office who ended up getting stuck in that building because he was, oh, I'm going to do a few more emails before I go into the chancery, into the safe haven. And well, he, he ended up having a rough day. <laughs> um, but they never got in and we were, we knew he was there and we knew we were in constant contact with him and we could have gone to get him at any point. Um, so they came out, they come over the walls and almost immediately they start, um, they're burning stuff. They're burning the gym. They're burning the motor pool. Um, we also had three guys, which I did not know about to the end, three motor pool staff, which were in motor pool stuck in there. Um, and the police just crumble. So these people are on the compound and they're trying to get in the chancery. And I always told, I used to brief this at the training center. I uh, said, for the longest time, we did not know what had happened to Benghazi. We knew the ambassador was dead, but DS to their shame, the DS leadership at that time, had not shared with us what happened. So I always say for the first half of Tunis, we were defending against the wrong attack. Um, we were defending against them caving a window in and basically a small unit coming in. So on one window, and there's video of this somewhere on YouTube, I could probably find it and send it to you. These guys are, are breaking through the FEBR window, but it's only about this big because they got like a flagpole and they're peeling it back. And then they're pouring gasoline in and then they're lighting it. And then they're, they're getting the next layer. And at one point there's a guy at the front door of the chancery and it's, you know, 30 minute doors, the wind, the real thick glass. He's got a drill. He's drilling through the glass. And we're laughing at him because you know, we're defending against bad guys with AK-47s coming in. And this guy's got a drill making a... Well, until they spray gasoline through the hole into my lobby, and now my lobby's on fire, um, until the guy from DAO, who we basically deputized a, a former special forces major a u.s army major was a special forces guy but he was doing dao work and we just went hey omine domine rso is here's an m4 go uh, and he called back and said hey the i'm start the gasoline's coming through i can smell it in the office um this is hours into it and they're throwing molotovs onto the roof and um at a certain point we kind of clustered together and said 
There was another, there was a loading dock door. Again, FEBR steel, the thing could have taken a nuke. There's all these Tunisians out there and they got a crowbar, one of our tools to open a crate. We had an insider threat, which I'll go into in a minute. And they're trying, they're, they got the crowbar under the door and they're pulling down on it. And it's these 110 pound Arab kids and we're laughing at them. Till we realized they're not trying to open the door. They know they can't open the door. They bent the weather stripping up underneath it. And then they're spraying the gasoline under. And then they built up a bunch of pallets and other flammables underneath the vent on the outside. Now they had misidentified that they thought it was our HVAC system. It wasn't, but they built the fire and the smoke's going in. So smoke's coming in, but they thought it was the, HVAC, it wasn't. It was just a generator room. Um, so eventually you figure out, look, they're not necessarily trying to get in. They're trying to introduce flammables in. Um, so then that changed how we were defending. Again, the, the, the uh, tear gas was crap. You know, my gun, he come down, he said, it, Sir, I literally hit a dude in the head with it, and he just laughed, brushed it off, and kept going. It was a windy day, too, so that powder just would go. And it was funny, because at some points, the Tunisians, they tried. The battle would ebb and flow. So sometimes they're trying to bash my door in, the bad guys. And then other times, the police would fight through, and then we could open the door and talk to them. Um, so at a certain point, A funny story. There's a guy at my front door. And he's not one of the guys who I've seen doing other things. And he's banging on the door. And finally, I'm like, that's Ramsey. He's one of the motor pool guys. And he's in like a his wife beater t-shirt. He's all streaked in tear gas and smoke. We we get the door open and we we get him in. We got the guards in too. There's in part of this video, you'll see the cat door open up and all the guards run in. So we got all of them in. Well, Ramsey, these guys, and they later got a heroism award for this. They exited the motor pool, grabbed a bunch of tools, and later on he goes, oh, sir, it was like Braveheart, because they come out the door and just start swinging and just deck a bunch of dudes. The motor pool's on fire, to include the gas tanks. They left their POVs and lost them. They grabbed three FAV Suburbans, drove them out through the attackers <laughs> to a field over by the Canadian embassy. And then Ramsey volunteered to come back in through the attack to tell us, hey, we've, we've got FAVs. We can come get people. <laughs> so Damn, good um, on him. The, and my SD team was doing the same way because, of course, phones down, cell service is down. So every once in a while, one of my SD guys would appear at a door and they're reporting in. Um, hey, this is where the crowd is. This is what we're seeing. This is what the police are doing. Do you want us to take a message to anyone? So these guys, we took care of them. Even the SD guys who were contractors, we, we made sure they were taken care of. The three motor pool guys got, um, got heroism awards. Um, DS headquarters was... Not helpful for the most part. Um, 
I remember the DAS of IP. Well, I'll just say Charlene Lamb said, do you have, they must've had ISR. They never told me they did, but she came on once and said, do you have people on your roof? And I said, yes. She said, take them down. And I said, well, ma'am, we don't have any cameras left. They're, I, they're the only way I can see. And she screamed at me, get them off the roof. So I got on the radio and I said, hey, per DS headquarters command, you need to come down. And uh, she knew what happened in Benghazi. She didn't tell me. Well, about 15 minutes go by and I said, you know what? Because now I'm blind. I said, I don't, I don't like this. So I said, guys, on my authority, my ARSO and my gunny and a DOD guy, I said, go back up. And I promise you that if we get in trouble, it's you, you went up on my, I'm making the call, go up. So, and I'm, they were going to put my gunny in for a, um, a bronze star, which he told them don't, but I mean, he would, they were up there dodging Molotovs and the police were shooting, but because they weren't watching where they were shooting, like the Browns were impacting the embassy. <laughs> uh, my gunny at the point, he said, Hey, I, I've been in Fallujah and no one ever came closer to shooting me. And then those bastards died. <laughs> um, and I'm talking like 50 cows on vehicles. They're shooting and the 50 cows were hitting our building. Um, so our guys go back up. Um, another thing she said at one point was, Kevin, well-aimed shots. And I went, what? She said, well-aimed shots. And I said, okay. And I, I'm not making this up. That's what she said twice. Well in shots. And I, she said, do you understand? I said, yeah, okay, well in shots. What she did not tell me was DS had changed the rules of engagement because of what was happening and emailed everyone. And that phrase is in there that you could engage targets outside of the chancery using well-aimed shots. But she didn't tell me that. So I didn't find out the rules of engagement had been changed to the following day. Um, so at a certain point, they found out the people were on, on the uh, roof again. And she started screaming at me, get them off the roof, get them off the roof, get them off the roof. Um, and this is a, another one of the funny stories. By now, I'm alone. I'm up there with the Marine. And we were constantly getting told you know, they're, they're in through consular, they're, they're in through the FSNI office. So I had given away my M4, I'd given away my Colt, I'd given away the shotgun on post. <laughs> um, so I had a bayonet from my Air Force days and I had it on my belt and the Marine had his K-bar and he goes, you know, what are we going to do, sir? And I said, well, we may have to go like all 300 in here because for a long time we thought there were people in the embassy between us and the safe haven. And we'd given away, I had my SIG, he had his Beretta, he had a K-bar, I had a bayonet. Um, turns out they had it, they were trying to. Um, but anyway, Charlene's yelling at me, get them off the roof, get them off the roof. And I turned to the Marine, I said, Marine, hang the phone up. <laughs> Roger that, sir. Well, of course it rings again, five minutes later. 
And then it, it's Wayne Ashbury, who at the time was the DAS for, uh, for countermeasures. And I knew Wayne very well from China. He would, he'd been the SSM and, and Wayne said, Hey, Kevin. And I'm like, Hey, Wayne. And he goes, how's it going? I'm like, all right. And I said, am I in trouble? And he goes, I think so. <laughs> but, and then I told him, I said, Hey, look, tell the dash she can have my creds when this is over, but I'm making the tactical call. Um, now again, in praise of my ambassador, at some point they wanted, they're asking in the middle of all this, they're asking me, have you discussed rules of engagement? Are you fucking kidding me? And they wanted to talk to the ambassador. So one of the Marines brought the ambassador down from the safe haven because we had the open line and he just lit in the DS command center. It was like, why are you wasting my time and my RSO's time with this? Um, Good on him. So eventually at one point, another kind of funny story, they told us, uh, hey, Delta's in the air. Oh, cool. Hey, <laughs> the Marine, hey, Delta's in the air. <laughs> you know, at one point they put me on, I can't remember the guy's name. It's a name we would know at the NSC. They said, hey, Kevin, are you still there? I said, yeah. He said, Kevin, you're on the, you're on the line with the uh, Situation Room in the White House. And I'm like, cool. And he said, can you last through the night? Said, no. And then whoever that was, he said, hey, um." so-and-so, the, the deputy national security advisor, did you just say no? And I said, no, we can't last through the night by ourselves. And he said, all right. Now we were making plans ourselves. Like, where do we go? We had a hundred people in the safe haven, which didn't fit a hundred people. So they were actually just in the CAA. <laughs> if we had to put them all in the safe haven, they would have been standing room only. Um, saying, well, if we're starting to lose the building, where do we go? And can we herd our people to where? The Canadian embassy? Yeah, we were joking about, we're going to invade the Canadian embassy. We're going to go over the wall of Canada and say, well, <laughs> you know, we'll deal with this later. But there's a bunch of Americans with guns just came over the wall. Um, or the Tunisian Air Force Base. We didn't really have good plans. So we were very happy when they said Delta's in the air. Of course, six hours later, there's still no Delta. Um, and we knew they were in Siganella, which you can see at night from Tunis. You can see Sicily. So it's like, well, are they coming or not? <laughs> um, by that point, someone had finally rattled the cages. And this is in the evening now. So this is all day we're doing this. The presidential guard for the the president of Tunisia sent the presidential guard to sweep the compound. Um, and then we got our people out. Um, the president, to his credit, said, my presidential guard are going to take everyone there. And they're going to come here to the presidential palace. And they did. They put them on the buses. Um, and again, it was one of the few heartfelt, of, kind of heartwarming periods because We've got everyone lined up. We're going to go outside. And we got the name. We, they've gone through two checkpoints where we've got a Marine. You've got a number, take their name. I, I want a list of everyone who left. And we told them there's dead bodies out front because there's been shooting people. Dead. There's, there's a dead dude right outside the door. 
there's tear gas, there's things on fire. Put your head down, put your hands on the shoulders and just go. And we're going to shepherd you to the bus. And then we said, hey, who has asthma? Who can't breathe? Because when we open that door, it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. And uh, I mean, I remember a good friend of mine who was, com- who was trying her best to keep her shit together. And she said, I can't do it. And I said, no, we're going. <laughs> and, you know, I put the M4 on one hand and put my arm around her in the stack. And we just went. And she was saying, you know, the whole thank you, thank you. And I remember everyone getting on the bus going, Hey, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Ryan, my ARSO. Uh, thank you, Gunny, as they're getting on the bus. Um, the next day, well, that night, the gates were down. So we were literally sending out like combat patrols <laughs> onto the compound because the compound was unsecure. There were fires burning. It was like apocalypse now. So my CB, one of the DOD guys, my ARSO, we launched them out a door to go sweep and come back and then sweep and come back. And then finally the DOD JSOC dude, Bubba's came in and we could finally for a while relax. But the next morning, I mean, we were just toasted. They never got in the chancery. They never got in the building, in the Mepi building. Um, we've, we've got him out eventually. We had no casualties. We had a couple small injuries. Um, nicks and scrapes i believe there were four deaths on compound um one of the things andrew mentioned was the stairway to heaven it was on this building so this is an inman building on the sides there were these decorative metal slats that went all the way to the roof and uh rso is going back to kevin bauer in the 90s when kevin bauer had done the rso there had complained about this that you could use that to climb to the roof and uh, they would never fix it because, oh, it's a low threat post, low threat post. And I remember OBO would come out, OIG would come out. Every time we'd get a visitor, Codels, I'd get one of my Marines to show them, like, hey, what concerns? Well, I got this thing. We call it the stairway to heaven. Carpal, go to the roof. Roger that, sir. Boop, go up like a lemur. Um, during the attack, they almost made it to the roof um, because... We had the insider threat. They had done their intel. I had guys on the roof. And my, my greatest fear was in the CAA, there were skylights. And those were not FEBR. That was just tempered glass. And if they had gotten under the roof, they could have just rained down on, on my people because you couldn't fit them all in the safe haven. Um, so that was another thing DS tried to counteract me on. My, my DOD guy called it out. He said, we got bad guys on the roof. And I said, per per discussions this morning, that is a deadly force situation. I am authorizing you to use deadly force if necessary. And DS Command Center tried to countermand that. And we hung up, we hung up on him again. So, um, in the end, you'll see the if you watch the video of Tunis, there's a guy moving from left to right. You see the guy coming up over the side. There's a guy on the roof coming left to right. That's my DOD friend. He's trying to get the shot. 
but he's small and he can't see over the HVAC unit to get the clear shot. <laughs> You'll see another guy coming from the four screen forward. That's my gunny. And he did the right thing. He said, sir, I had a, I've, I've, he's got a shotgun. He said, I saw the guy coming this way. He could, I couldn't remember if I had a slug or a double lot in the tube. So I didn't fire because he's coming this way. The bad guy's here. Um, so in the end, we didn't end up shooting anyone on the roof. But that's the stairway to heaven story is that, of course, after the attack, OBO was still mad because uh, the JSOC guys, of course, are, are, are uh, Swiss Army knives. They'll do anything. They literally cut up a bunch of – they said, how did the guys get on the roof? We said, oh, right here. See, it's a stairway. They cut up a bunch of shipping containers and welded them over those <laughs> and said, oh, now you can't climb it. They, they welded the shipping container pieces up about 30 feet. And OBO came out, well, you can't do that. That's not in the design. And they're like, hey, just, again, the ambassador said, are you kidding me? Get off my post. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what we did. O over the broken windows, we, uh, we, we literally cut up shipping containers because we had just had a big uh, door project. And we cut up the shipping containers and we welded those over the broken windows and broken doors. Um, so we looked like Fort Apache the Bronx for months. Uh, you know, the Delta guys were great. It's, it's just amazing to watch how they work because we needed a, a forklift to get husks of cars and just rubble out of the way. And we're trying to do it the State Department way. My, my GSO is trying to contract to, for a 10K forklift and no one wants to risk their forklift or be seen to be working for the Americans. And no one wants to come up with they just go across the street to a construction site with a bag full of money and tell the, the guy in the forklift there, they went, Hey, go home today. And the next yeah. thing you know, they're out nice. there. <laughs> <laughs> and the ambassador says, Hey, where'd you get the forklift? Like, Oh, don't ask questions. You don't want the answers to sir. It's taken, gets paid for. Yeah. You know, they just walk the dude across the street with a bag full of you know, little bag with a bunch of hundred dollars bills in it and show him a gun and say, go home today. And he went, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. So the second half of that year was tough. Um, the families were obviously all evacuated. Uh, another funny story, they were evacuating. We, our rally point was the American Cemetery. And um, of course, everyone's late. My family's there on time. We're early. And we've secured the perimeter. And my son was, how old was Andrew? 16? Yeah, 16-ish. So we're waiting. It's it's pretty subdued, but it's not panicky. And um, some of the JSOC dudes, Bubba's are running around. And, and my son goes, oh, are those your MSD guys? And I said, no. And he said, uh, oh, who are they? And I said, well, I'll, I'll tell you one day. So then he said, oh. I said, do you want to meet him? And I said, he goes, yeah. So I go up to, go up to the team sergeant and shooting the shit. And uh, then we're, we're walking away. And my son goes, who are they? I go, I'll tell you one day. And you can see the gears turn. He stops dead in his tracks. The 16-year-old video game, he goes, those are the guys from my game. 
<laughs> he's right. And I go, yeah. And he's like, can I talk to him? I'm like, yeah, no, that you can. But I'm like, be cool. So, but uh, that was one of the funny things is he st- it finally clicked. He's those are the guys from my game. <laughs> oh man, so That's awesome. You know, Bill Miller by then was uh, whatever he was, the the das of the nascent high threat. At that point, it wasn't even really high threat, and uh. You know, I remember him telling me on the phone, hey, man, the year following the attack is going to be worse than the attack. He goes, very soon, the goodwill is going to wear off. And then, you know, the 3,000-mile screwdriver is going to – and it, he was true. There's probably more stressful dealing with Washington trying to micromanage the post. Um, the next morning, it was funny, Kevin Bauer called me. And, of course, he'd been the RSO when we got attacked in – in uh, Bahrain, and his first, I answered the phone. He goes, "Hey, Kevin, it's Kevin." And I said, "Oh, what's up?" And he goes, "What did you do this time?" <laughs> like I don't know, man. And he said, um, "He said, have you ever considered it might be you?" <laughs> hey, did you need something, brother? <laughs> uh, so another funny story, but um, also seriously, I don't think he knew the DoD element was in there yet, but. Um, they were trying to get ARSOs into me, and uh, I still didn't know what happened in Benghazi. He was one of the ones who told me, and uh, you know, he got all serious and he goes, "You don't know how bad it is." And I said, "No, it's pretty bad, man. My embassy's on fire." And he said, "Hey, man, you have to keep them safe until I can get to you." And I said, "No, I'm, I'm good. We're gonna." Um, but I, I still remember that, like the change in his voice from busting my balls to. Like, hey man, we're trying to get to you, but you gotta you gotta do it till we get to you. And I'm like, oh shit, dude. Um, so, you know, we did a lot of rebuilding. Um, me and my ARSO got heroism awards. My SD coordinator, who was a direct hire, got a heroism award. My FSNI got a heroism award. The three motor pool guys got heroism awards. We could not give one to my guard coordinator because he wasn't an employee, but we printed off of one. We basically forged a certificate and then acquired the medal from somewhere. Um, and we gave him the medal in the equivalent money award um, because you know he was a former uh, Tunisian military policeman. And he was one of the guys like coming through the attackers to give me info. And it just wasn't fair that we couldn't recognize him because he was a contractor so um as far as i know i think that's the largest still like number of heroism awards in one day for the department yeah makes sense two, i haven't heard of a two american two americans and five fsns for all the same incident yeah damn man oh okay well you you have a few more t- tours right after this. Yeah, then Bill Miller took care of me, and I went to. Uh, so they let us cut our tour short. So I did a second year, and I had told them I, I have more Charlene Lamb stories how she scared me, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. Um, they said, "Oh, if you're on a three year tour, you can cut your tour short." And I promised the ambassador, and I said, "I will do a year here." because I know how hard it is to fill a spot when someone curtails. I said, it's nothing anyone in, in Baghdad or Kabul isn't doing. 
And I also said, I vow to you, I will stand on the roof of this embassy on the one year anniversary and scream, I'm still fucking here. So that was my goal. And, and I did on that one year anniversary, just before I PCS, I went up on the roof and I was like, fuck you, I'm still here. Um, so uh, did a year in Tunis after the families evacuated, cut that tour shut, went to the training center. Um, it's the land of misfit toys. It's the land of broken toys. Um, there was a lot I learned there about curriculum development and how you do a course. There's, there's good people there. There's obviously a lot of good people there, but um, I remember sitting there one time and going like, wow, there's a lot of fucked up people around here. And then thinking, wait a minute, I'm here. They think I'm one of them. <laughs> um, but it was really Bill, Bill took care of me because I was out of cycle and, and he just put me there and, and I didn't have a job. So I just kind of made up jobs and, and I was uh, Rick Cologne's fixer. So he needed something at the training center done. I did it. He needed something out in West Virginia did, done. I did it. It was, um, and then that landed me my best tour. I was the di deputy director out in Ilea in Bangkok. Um, so that again, non-traditional, unlike RSO jobs, you weren't officially connected to the embassy, certainly not officially connected to RSO. I worked for T. Um, it was like a, it was like you were special duty assignment to INL and then they TDY'd you basically to Thailand for three years. So, um, T did my EER. It was a lot of GSO work, but again, it was great because you learned about curriculum development. I probably learned more about budgeting there than anything else. Um, I didn't really teach. I did sometimes but that's because I wanted to, um, but it was me and one DEA agent and we were embedded with the Royal Thai police at their training academy, 30 miles outside of the city. I rarely went to the embassy. It's the first time in my career, like I didn't know people when I went to the embassy. Um, I had a staff of a few FSNs, but it was mostly Royal Thai police officers. Uh, and it was just fun. They made it really fun. It was, and we used to tell, I would tell my FSO friends, we do more diplomacy here in a two week class than you do in a whole tour. Because I have you know, Cambodians and Vietnamese in the same class and, and they're shooting at each other at home. And here we're, uh, you know, we're shooting baskets and we're, we're training them how to work in a stack together. Um, I remember sitting there with a Vietnamese guy, Vietnamese general. And uh, we were watching the Filipinos beat up on the FBI playing basketball, which by the way, never ever let the Filipino think the Filipinos don't know how to play. <laughs> a bunch of little dudes and they're like, hey, anyone want to play ball? No, they can ball. I, I, I played some of them in, in college. Um, and then just... They're all fucking ringers, man. <laughs> um, and we're watching these dudes play basketball and they're just school in the FBI and the Vietnamese general whose English was pretty good says uh, hey what would your father do in the war and I was like ah <laughs> I said well he was in the Marines but uh, he didn't go to Vietnam um, and he laughed he said oh you know I, I 
my, you know, my father fought too. And he said, you know, I thought it's a good chance that I told him, I said, my uncles were there. He goes, Oh, you know, my, my father and your uncles probably shooting at each other. And he said, now we're sitting here drinking a beer, watching the Filipinos play basketball. So he goes, it's a small, it's a weird world. And I, so I would tell the FSOs that, that, you know, we, we would do more like diplomacy because they, we did a good job with them. The, the classes were great, but the after hour stuff where we did scavenger hunts and drunken Jenga and karaoke and, and all that, um, we were trying to really model it on the FBI's National Academy and that it was like a thing. Like if you were, had that National Academy badge, if you had that ILEA badge, that you were special. And it didn't matter that you were Vietnamese or you were Burmese or you were from Malaysia, like, oh, we were in the same class. And we would get a lot of that. We would get guys that would call us and say, hey, I had a case and my bad guy went to Indonesia and I called up my buddy from the class and we rolled up a you know child sex ring or we, we rolled up a money launderer. So uh, that was kind of gratifying. The DEA agent used to tell the ambassador, he said, we only tell good news stories here. Um, one of the guys, Indonesian dudes that had been, he was, he had just taken our tactical course and then he stayed for the advanced tactical course. So he was there for a month. And then when he went home, they, within months, they had an active shooter at a mall somewhere in Jakarta and he was the on-scene commander. And, you know, he, he called us and said, Hey, everything you taught me is what I did. And it, it turned out great. And he was like all over the Indonesian newspapers and everything. So that was kind of, we turned it into a story for INL. So again, it was kind of gratifying, but it wasn't really our, it certainly wasn't RSO work. Um, yeah. And then I went to high threat and uh, that's where I ended up as an office director. It was a lot of our stuff was DOD. So the office I ran pretty much for DS if you were DS and you were touching the military, it was coming through us. Except for MSG, for reasons sure. I never understood. We tried to get MSG program and it didn't work. <laughs> um, MSG was the only uh, DOD related, the major DOD related thing in the CBs that, that didn't fall under me. Yeah, I didn't know that. I had departed uh, at, by that point. So that's that's pretty cool, man. That's quite the accomplishment. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it wasn't my brainchild. Um, I always I would tell uh, Dash Sherman and, and Dash Matusis, you know, it's or or my guy like, hey, you know, you guys were the were the Bill Belichick, you know, I'll I'll be Tom Brady, but I was I was running your playbook. Oh, how how humble of you to to be Tom Brady, Kevin. Oh, you know, <laughs> the resemblance is clear. At least I. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, Tom Brady was only in, in those days at least was only as good as. He was good, but he was running Belichick's plays, and that's what we were doing. Yeah, right on. Well, cool, man. This has been awesome. I uh, I got some hungry kids, and uh, probably by now, with by herself, an angry wife. Uh, Excellent. Wait, waiting on me. Um, but man, this is yeah, some great stories. Um, let's end with this. Any, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have uh, a good bit of aspiring DS agents that listen to the podcast. I think are nearing fifty thousand downloads now. Um, and, uh, what, what advice might you have for a new agent? Oof. When I first came on, um, I was at FSI doing that, that orientation thing. And 
the agent who was in charge of it, like our coordinator for our class came in, Jay Goodrich. And he said, this is the best job in the world. Sorry, I'm still not sure about that. You're not, are you? Hey, that's that's some great timing. <laughs> that's, keep that in there. I that will. was Siri. Will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Siri has the advice. So... He said, hey, this this is the best job in the world. And it and it really has been, you know, having just retired in September, um, it's been tough. I've lost hearing in this year. Um, I've got a bad Achilles from Tunis. I, I, you know, I've got beat up knees and like the rest of us. Um, I've got no hair and gray hair, but it really was, it's the best job in the world. And you get to do a little bit of everything. And you get to do meaningful stuff if you want to, um, you know, to hear, you know, I ran into an FSO from, from Tunis and he was telling someone else, again, unprompted, certainly unprompted by me. He said, I'm alive because Kevin, because of Kevin. And I was like, what? And he was like, you know, we all would have been dead. You know, like, oh, wow, that's, um, you get to do cool guy stuff sometimes with, with the other cool kids in the government, whether it's on the CI side or, or, the, or the military side um, or the criminal side, NYPD. Um, you get to do some meaningful stuff there even. And, and I know crim's not a huge deal with us, but like in that New Jersey case where we were busting those, they would, they were stealing from the mentally disabled folks. It's, you know, that was, that was meaningful stuff. Um, advice. I always, obviously from, from the assignment, I never took the jobs necessarily that were going to get me promoted. I took the jobs that I wanted to do and had good people with them. And then that got me promoted in most cases. Because like in HTP, well, I didn't get promoted there, but that's a whole other story. You know, I had a, I had a team of all-stars and I used to tell Carlos and, and Dash Sherman, this job is easy because I, because I have them. They make me look good every day. Um, in Tunis, I had a great ARSO. I, I had a great staff in the SEO office. My Marine debt was awesome. Uh, when I was in Bahrain, you know, Kevin Bauer and then Tim Haley let us do what we needed to do. Let us be inventive. Let us be that outside of the box thinking like, hey, boss, I got an idea. Want to, let's try this. Um, even someone who was kind of older school and, and more traditional like Kevin still let us, let us learn like that. Uh, so if you like that, then, you know, DS is perfect. If you don't, if you're more of a regimented, you know, you want the secret service with their checklists in there, which is fine. Um, but we do that Semper Gumby thing better than anybody. And if you want to be that person where you're kind of out there on your own with a lot of responsibility early on, uh, and the ability to make decisions early on, or where you're sitting in front of an ambassador or in China, I was in front of the 
House Select Committee on Intelligence came to China and had a hearing in the embassy skiff. So I'm in front of the House House Intelligence Committee and they're like, Mr. Warner, we have a question for you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> um, you know, and I'm a two, I'm a brand new two. Um, if you want to be, I could tell all kinds of stories in Bahrain in the uh, admiral's meeting with it. I'm sitting next to NCIS as a four and the admiral turns and asks, hey, what's the embassy position? I'm moving the Kennedy battle group through the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, sir. What do you want to do? It's your ship. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, all of that stuff is is what I would tell people who are interested is if you like kind of that chaotic creativity, the ability to be creatively in, in chaos and have a lot of responsibility early and to be on your own, then this is it. Right on creatively in chaos. I might use that, man. I'm going to use that in the, in the and travel the world. You know, my, yeah, my son, we we've climbed the great wall. We've gone on safaris. I've had, you know, staring contest with Russian spies. I, you know, we've got the best stories too. That we do. That's what we're trying to do with the podcast. So uh, good way to end it. Um, thanks, Kevin, for coming on, man. Thanks all for right. sharing all your stories. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll get we'll get your buddy on here uh, once he's all done. Um, and yeah, I'll take you up on, on the Robert Booth and uh you know that video but hang on a second i'm gonna i'm gonna sign off but uh but i won't hang up we'll chat on the back of it all right thank you kevin for joining us on the podcast i'm grateful that you took the time to come on i could sit down with kevin i could tell he had a ton more other stories uh and two hours is just not enough but uh you know, we might get him back on a podcast. We talked about doing some interesting things, maybe even just tell, having a podcast with funny stories uh, and, and a couple other agents uh, at some point. But anyway, thank you, Kevin. You're the man. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, all right. As I do it, every podcast, I talk about some administrative items of how you can support not only the podcast, but the different things that I'm doing out there uh, or support yourselves because most of everything I do is free. And if you're looking to become a diplomatic security special agent, I have some resources out there to provide to you. So those of you interested, uh, whether it's whether it's diplomatic security special agent, a federal law enforcement agent in some other capacity, global security professional, I've, de I've developed resources. Number one is YouTube. I put out 20 plus videos discussing life as a DSS agent, living overseas, leadership, family concerns. Go on and check it out. Just search my name, Cody Perron. And again, uh, it's gonna. I think it's gonna add a ton of value to uh, you. Either choosing to pursue this career, maybe not, because it might not be the right thing for your family, or uh, it might get you inspired, excited. It might inspire you to to continue to push and and do your best uh, to get into the job. I also have a Facebook group. Uh, it's uh, pushing a thousand people. I think it's around eight hundred people, but it's called Becoming a DSS Agent. Uh, and this is a this is a, a group where retired, former, current DS special agents interact with DS candidates, DS interested folks, uh, and you ask questions. And I have group experts that have been assigned 
uh, and they respond to those questions. Now, there's, there's sometimes we don't have everyone. I don't have anyone from HR, so sometimes it's HR questions, and we just give, you know, the best background information that we can. Uh, but this group was made to kind of clear up the clutter that's online from these different 911 forums. So just about everything you get in this group is really, really accurate. Um, and if not, I take it down, so I monitor it. Uh, but becoming a DSS agent, just fill out the 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 uh, uh, the questions, um, and uh, you know, so I know who you are that you're uh, really interested. Also, if you are a DSS agent or a former DSS agent, we'd love to have you as part of the group to help out. This is all part of mentorships, inspiring people. Uh, and again, of course, the group is free. Come in, do your thing, uh, and enjoy. I also have an Instagram page, off the X underscore Inc. I do post about DSS things. I also post about global security and personal safety, uh, just about anything that's uh, related to security and safety. But I have people that are following that are not interested in DS. They're just interested in safety tips. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the world is a dangerous place. And so I, I talk a little, I, I do a little bit of everything on that page. Uh, the only two things that cost are, well, the book. This all started with writing uh, my book, Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. Uh, it's available in paperback on Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com. Um, you can get it from my website, codyperron.com. It's also in digital format in iBooks and Kindle and in audio format in both Audible and Apple Books. And there's probably a couple other locations you could get it, uh, but you know, go check that out. The other thing is for those of you wanting a bit more, whether it's more stories or you don't want to you know, uh, you, you don't want to buy anything from my website to support the cause, understood. Uh, but there's an option through Patreon should you want to support more content. Uh, it's like $5 a month. Uh, and you get everything from learning more about the career field that I don't put out in public, hints and tips for federal law enforcement interviews, advice on becoming an effective federal law enforcement agent or security professional. Uh, it's at Patreon, patreon.com slash off the X underscore Inc. Uh, and again, it's $5 a month and you can get some, some, uh, extra stuff discount on off the X apparel. Uh, I also do some stories there. If you, if you enjoyed the book, you know, DS agents have plenty of stories throughout their career that might not be, uh, have enough meat to be in a book. Uh, but I, I do, uh, I try to do monthly stories, uh, about, and, and, and I think they're pretty interesting. Uh, so, you know, 20 minute stories or something, just kind of like I'm doing this podcast, I'll tell a story. And I think there's value there. The other thing we do at the highest grade level is we can do mock interviews, resume uh, review and support. Um, we also do, uh, you know, personal narrative writing, just writing samples just to help you out. Uh, I don't have the answers. I don't know, but I but I do know what DS looks for. and I do know how how we write. Uh, and I've had great success supporting people getting through uh, the DSAT and uh, well, recently the DSAT. Only a, a couple of them have applied, so they haven't gotten all the way through yet. But through the BECs, the Board of Examiners, we've supported, uh, you know, people trying to get through. Um, again, I don't know the answers, but I have some ideas of how I can help you. And I'm, and I'm a sounding board as well. You know, you can contact me anytime and we get on the phone, get on a Zoom call and and chat about different things. But uh, I also throw on uh, thought-provoking articles, um, and we do virtual happy hours. Uh, I plan on getting some guest speakers. Uh, Scenario-based training, that's something that pops up. Some of you that aren't in the security field might not know how to respond for these things, so we, we have scenarios and we talk about different ideas. So it's kind of a robust uh, platform that I have to uh, support you all in your endeavors or just to entertain. Uh, my, my, my objective is to add value and entertain, and that's kind of how I roll with it. Lastly, uh, CodyParon.com is my website where I'll have apparel, I have hoodies, 
I have hats, I have stickers, I have shirts. Uh, I have coffee mugs now. Oh, you can put anything in them. I put bourbon in it and coffee. Uh, but but black uh, stainless steel coffee mugs, uh, off the X ink uh, logo on it. So go check it out. I appreciate you all. Thank you for the support. Uh, everything, any support you provide does help. Uh, there's a cost associated with doing business. Uh, I quote unquote business, this side thing that I'm doing. Uh, but this cost of platforms and your support is greatly appreciated. So if you have any questions, info at codyperron.com, hit me up, find me on the social media apps and hit me up there if you need to. Otherwise, y'all have a great week and I'll catch you on the back side.